0: Gracious Father, would you take my feeble words and transform them in the power of your Spirit to life-changing words. And would you touch our hearts afresh that we might receive your Word and become more like Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, I want to start just by saying... How much Anthea and I have enjoyed being in your company for this past week. Um, I have a particular love for the southern states of uh, America, where the men are men and the girls are purdy, and the children are way above average. <laughs> and it might amuse you to know that I think that I started coming here off the back of mistaken identity. Uh, George Carey, Archbishop of Canterbury, allegedly recommended me to Paul Zarl when he was dean here. And I was talking to George and thanked him warmly for his commendation and said I had a great time out there. I said, You know, it's a bold thing to do. He said, What's that? I said, To recommend me when you've never heard me preach. He said, Haven't I? (laughs) I said, Listen to me. uh, I don't think so. He said, well, I was at that Oxford Mission you spoke at, so I didn't have the heart to tell him it wasn't me. <laughs> so we, I thank you, and I thank Dean Limehouse again for his gracious invitation, and I want to say to you that I hope those of you who are members here appreciate the treasure that you have, and you stand for orthodoxy and for Bible religion is something that moves me deeply, and I'm glad to be here, and hopefully to encourage you. Mark chapter 9, and verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Karen Armstrong, a Roman Catholic nun, grew up as an unusually religious girl and entered a convent as a nun when she was 18 years old. She later wrote about that experience in her book, Through the Narrow Gate. Later, she would leave the order and eventually became a theologian of some kind. I've never read her books, but at one point, she described her early religious experience in this way. As a child, I had a number of strong beliefs, but little faith in God. There is a distinction between belief in a set of propositions and a faith which enables us to put our trust in them. I cannot say, however, that my belief in these religious opinions about the nature of ultimate reality gave me much confidence that life here on earth was good or beneficent. I entered a religious order, and as a novice and a young nun, I learned a good deal more about the faith. I applied myself to apologetics, scripture, theology, and church history. I delved into the history of monastic life, and embarked on a minute discussion of the rule of my own order, which we had to learn by heart. Strangely enough, she said, God figured very little in any of this. Attention seemed focused on secondary details and the more peripheral aspects of religion. I wrestled with myself in prayer, trying to force my mind to encounter God, but he returned a stern taskmaster who observed my every infringement of the rule. And this is the point that I want you to hear. She said, but nothing had actually happened to me from a source beyond myself. See, my friends, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And many of you are cradle Episcopalians. You're pleased to tell me that, and I'm pleased to hear it. But let me ask you this. What do you do when your faith is not living? Or even more sadly, when your faith turns stale? When, like the man in our Bible reading, your vision becomes a little blurred. The subtle theme of what I've been talking to you about this past week, though maybe not so subtle, is what I describe as the most critical existential question for all of us. And it's this. What am I becoming? Let me remind you that whatever you're becoming, I never met a person yet who ever planned to become an addict I didn't meet anybody who ever planned to end up in a situation of spiritual atrophy. I never met anybody who on their wedding day was planning their divorce. I never met anyone who planned to become an embittered person and whose only hymn in life is bitter complaint. Too often, it seems to me, we just let ourselves drift and end up wondering how it is we got to where we are. And what you need to know is that there is something wrong with you. Uh, Before you walk out of the church, just bear with me for a moment. Jeremiah, that prophet, said this, and it's sadly true of me, and I dare to suggest that I'm not alone in this great cathedral right now. He wrote this, The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Would it be fair to say, that we are people who can't so easily be deceived. We can be people who generally can be very over-optimistic about what we are, and are people who are desperately uncomfortable to say the least when somebody levels with us and tries to give us a little feedback. When we suffer from this malaise, our faith becomes stale. And here's my point, and it's my only point today. When that happens, we need, like the man in our story, a second touch from Jesus. We need our vision restored and our faith turbocharged. This malaise means that the focus of what you call your faith shifts and ceases to be faith in God. You feel like you're doing laps when you come along to church. You start to fall in love with religion, with robes and ritual and status. As I said earlier in the week, you start to make idols for yourself. Let me remind you that Paul said man-made gods are no gods at all. And you start to borrow strength from stuff like titles and status and qualifications. You stop trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross and you start to believe that your few acts of kindness will see you home with the net effect that you have no assurance of salvation and just live the life of a church going neurotic. You don't expect God to do much in your life and the lives of those around you and the Bible's teaching seems more and more applicable to other people rather than to you. It was George Bernard Shaw who wrote, The average member of the Church of England likes a good sermon because he thinks it will do his neighbour good. (laughs) You become judgmental of others on a very superficial grounds, and though you have a plank in your own eye, it's better to criticise the speck of sawdust in the eyes of others. You have invented tick-box religion... And you are becoming something neither you or God ever intended you to become. My friend, you need a second touch from God and you know it. But my guess is that you're not comfortable comfortable with admitting it. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond pure. You can understand it. Some years ago when I was a young man, many years ago when I was a young man, I read a book by a man called Keith Miller. It was a book that had a profound influence on me as a young man. It was called A Second Touch. Listen for a moment to his analysis of what I've been talking about. What happens, he writes, when a person makes a conscious attempt to commit his entire life to the living God, lives a few joyous, productive years in his church, maybe even becomes an ordained minister... And then wakes up one day and finds that the well has gone dry. Faith becomes only a word again. What kind of a way is there for people like us? People who have been baptized and confirmed, have practiced the Christian disciplines, and have said all the right formulas after accepting Christ as Saviour and Lord. And yet, if we dare to be honest, we are fed up with our church talking, with the continued religious noise And with the nervous, seemingly manufactured involvement of our Christian brothers. But still, beneath all our frustration and rebellion, we want deeply to be God's people. Friends, I want to say to you, and I pray that you will hear this, that the God who in Jesus gave back blind people their sight, is the God who can restore you today. That the God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead can raise your walk with him from doing laps to a walk of ongoing transformation. St. Paul laid out in Ephesians God's plan for all believers, that you may reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He went on that you will grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. You see, growth is meant to be the normal condition of every believer. And let me remind you for a moment what St. Paul nails as the fundamental characteristic of spiritual immaturity. This is very telling stuff. In 1 Corinthians 3, and I should say that I think the Corinthian church thought of itself as a church in the fast track. You know what, I think even Joel Osteen may have been the pastor (laughs) there. I think they went in for bungee jumping, rock till you drop kind of worship. And I think they thought they were really something. And St. Paul had to say to them, you know, I wanted to feed you with solid food, but actually I had to give you breast milk because you're immature and I quote here directly from the Good News Bible which I believe captures the sense of the Greek a little better Paul then says the reason that I could only give you breast milk was that you're spiritually mature and this is what spiritual maturity looks like according to St. Paul in the Good News Bible translation you still live as the people of this world live you still live as the people of this world live. If you know that you're still living as the people of this world live, life as normal with a bit of religion thrown in, let me tell you, my friend, you really do need a second touch from God. And this would be a depressing message. If it was high on diagnosis and low on cure, who would go to a doctor who spent ages explaining to you that you had an infection? And then finally said, and I've got no idea what to do about this. Well, brothers and sisters, I have an idea. And I'm going to ask you to do something simple if you would like today a second touch from Christ. This will not be dramatic. I promise you it will not be humiliating. It will not be time consuming. You'll still get your lunch. But it could be potentially life changing for you. But in a moment, I'm going to ask you to kneel. And I will pray for a second touch for you. And if the Holy Spirit has whispered in your ear this past week, or even, as a friend said to me, taken a baseball bat to your head, I will invite you to, step to kneel, that I might pray for you, and I know that if you are serious, your life will never be the same. And I want to say that there may be some people in this great cathedral who need a first touch from Christ. People who have never trusted Christ and in Him alone to forgive your sins and give you eternal life. But many of you, I know, need a second touch from Jesus. And I would implore you, don't hold out. Don't let the devil tell you that you're not ready, that you need to be a little more spiritual, a little more moral. How long is God going to wait till that happens? Now, while you mull over your response to my invitation, I want to end with a real-time story of the power of God to transform. When I was in local church ministry, it came to a point where we had to hire somebody to run our youth and children's department. This was a parish in a very comfortable part of England, referred to as the Yacht and Yogurt bell. We had people to interview. Some of the kids of people in the congregation, middle class kids who'd received a university education were looking for something to do with their lives for a couple of years before they went off to make a pile of money. We had one boy who was rough. He talked rough. His manners were rough. And when I interviewed him, I got him to tell me a story. And when I heard his story, I knew this was the man I wanted to appoint. And my wardens were dead set against me. They're like, this guy doesn't have the social sophistication to fit in here. His name was Duncan. And before he was a Christian, he was a full-time burglar. He robbed people's houses. And one day, he was robbing somebody, and they came back home. And they didn't know he was up in their bedroom... Loading the jewelry and the video and all that stuff into a, some kind of sack. And they were sitting around the kitchen table when he was walking out with the sack over his shoulder. They said good afternoon to them and they said, sit down. And they started to talk to him and, and they said to him this They said We promise you that if you promise us that you will never go and burgle anybody's house again. We won't tell the police that you've burgled ours. And by the way, we've been talking to you for the past half hour, so we can give a great description of you to the police. He said, I can't do that. He said, I'm a burglar, it's what I do. Can't do it. So he said, fine, we'll report you to the police. You have till Friday to let us know. Thursday he came back to them, said something like this. I have not been able to sleep since you gave me the offer to let me off. I have never experienced in my life anybody who has been prepared to show me that kind of mercy. And these people are Christians. And they said to him, let's introduce you to the God of mercy who can forgive your sins and fill you with the Spirit and turn your life around. Well, the rest, as they say, is history. We appointed him, and there was a time in their church when we had a thousand young people and children on our books. He went on from us to set up a very large charity ministering to street children in Guatemala. And today still has a heart for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. Don't tell me that God can't turn around your life. Please don't tell me that God can't give you a second touch and take those of you who are doing laps and just invigorate you. So here's my plan. I'm going to invite you now, if the Spirit has touched you this week, would you just do something? And that is just kneel down right now. Go ahead. Don't do this if you don't want to do it. I only want you do is don't do it for me. Do it for God. And let's just be quiet for a second. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Touch us afresh. That those of us who know we're messed up might just be able to come clean and tell somebody and get prayed with and get help. Father, those of us who know they were just warming pews week by week but our religion is tick box and we're just doing laps. Father, would you send a cattle prod shot of your Holy Spirit into their hearts that they might be renewed Lord, I pray for anybody in this cathedral who's not yet surrendered and never trusted you for salvation and never looked to the cross for forgiveness. Father, would your Holy Spirit open their eyes that they might see who you are and what you've done. And Father, might we all be clear that grace means the end of earning but not the end of effort. That we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. Come, Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray for all those who are kneeling. I pray for all those who long, long to know you more dearly, love you more clearly, follow you more really. Come, Holy Spirit. Our souls inspire, enlighten with thy celestial fire. Come, Holy Spirit. And those that agree, say it together Amen.